The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let me, as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, try to place where we are in pulpit considerations. Uh, The last Sunday of December, uh, I began a series on the important passage, Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, a subject we've considered before in my time with you, but certainly worth considering again. Our associates carried that subject forward through January and February when I was primarily not here. Then we had a missions conference, and now we're back to the Sermon on the Mount again for two weeks before we break for Palm Sunday and Easter. So there is continuity to what we're doing, but it's a little interrupted here in these weeks. Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21, is where I'm reading. I just remind you for background the the brief but important statement that the Sermon on the Mount is not a a kind of New Testament Ten Commandments of rules you are to obey so as to become a Christian. It is spoken by Jesus to his disciples, not to the uninitiated, but to the faithful. And he is saying this is what the behavior of a Christian looks like. This is not the things that make you a Christian. These are the things that exhibit the fact that you are one. And so we pick up the topic of, in my Bible, the uninspired title that's there over verse 21 says, Anger. Let's look at this subject together. Matthew 5, 21, Jesus is the speaker. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of our God through his Son. Almost daily we are shocked by some new development in the world of violence in America or overseas or even in our own community. I guess it's about three weeks now that we once again saw that scene that has become so familiar of students running out of a school with their hands in the air to show the SWAT teams that they are not the offender as people are being killed in our public school buildings. 
I say we're shocked daily, but I wonder, are we even shocked anymore? Do we have the ability to be shocked by what anger, unresolved anger in a young life can do in destruction of other lives? Some reason, and I was working on this subject this week, I thought of an individual I counseled many years ago, came into my office and just began to spill out all kinds of, like it was all kinds of poison being spilled out of, uh, the person just had to talk about everybody that he was angry with, everybody he was out of sorts with, and it just kept coming and coming. I just felt like I had to let him vent. And then I asked him a question. I said, what do you think was the original basis of your being so angry? And he glared at me, a glare that would have melted something harder than hard cheese. And he said, me? Angry? Are you kidding, Pastor? Where do you get the idea I'm angry? And I could see we had a lot of work to do. Anger, Jesus said, is the root of something much worse. I doubt if there are any actual murderers in our midst today. There could be. I suppose it's possible that someone had killed someone, literally spilled blood, maybe went to prison and paid your debt and are out of prison, or maybe escaped being convicted. I don't know, but I think it's highly unlikely that such a person is here. And yet, I have to look at this passage and tell you, you may not have realized, I'm a murderer, and guess what? You are too, in the definition of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For he told us, and as Pastor Kiefer would have told you, I wasn't here, but I, if I see the text he was dealing with a couple of weeks ago, right before this, Jesus was going to the roots of what the law was saying, not just the surface, not just the the act, uh, the obvious act that broke the law of God, but what was beneath that. And so he was saying that a straight line could be drawn from severe anger in the life, and the act that breaks out with violence with a weapon and actually kills someone. The spirit of the law matters even more than the letter of the law is what Jesus was saying. So he was penetrating to hidden motives and secret thoughts and saying, this is where the problem starts. And the problem, in order to be healed and reconciled, the answer has to go deep as well and not just treat the surface issue. First of all today, then, I want you to hear Jesus tell us this, that proud condemnatory anger is simply another name for murder. Now, we're not speaking so much about the details of this, the sixth commandment from Exodus today. Uh, you may know it from the King James statement, thou shalt not kill. A better translation of it, the real intent of the Hebrew word is, thou shalt not murder. The act of premeditated destruction of another human life is there, not simply killing in all or any forms. And if we wanted to go down this trail, which we do not this morning, we could, we could see that there's a differentiation made there that allows for biblical teaching that a nation has a right to defend itself as a nation. And you as a soldier or sailor or Air Force person might end up killing someone 
in defense of your country in a just war situation. And you might also be, as a farmer, the person who kills a chicken for dinner. There are all kinds of killing that go on, and it is not all the murder that Exodus is speaking against. But Jesus here is going into that murder and saying, where does that start that I would be responsible for literally striking out against and desiring to destroy, if I could, another person's life? What does that look like? Anyone who is angry with his brother, Jesus says, will be subject to judgment. Now, there is anger that is not sinful. Let's say that for a moment first. There is wrath that belongs to God that is holy and completely just. God hates sin. He hates the works that sin accomplishes in our lives. And he hates things that are violations of his character and his commandment. And that is holy. That is not wrong of God. That is not God having a temper tantrum. That is holy anger. Now, we like to say that, well, maybe my anger is holy too. And especially when it's yours, I'm sure you might think it is. Sometimes we do participate in things that God is angry about. When we're angry at sin, angry at those who malign God and trample on his word and his commands and, and faith in his Son, we can taste and participate in God's righteous anger. Psalm 119.53 has a statement there where the psalmist says, Hot indignation seizes me. Why? Because of the wicked who forsake your law. The psalmist is saying, I hate what you hate, God, and people who treat your word with disgust. But while we may sometimes participate in that, I think we have to admit that most of our anger that we feel and we act out and we think about or ponder over is not holy anger. It is sinful anger because it's directed against other people, people who have gotten in our way, people whom our self-centered pride says, why didn't they know that I was superior to them? Why didn't they understand that I'm entitled to something and they're not? How dare they push in to my province of decision-making and criticize my ideas? And we respect, we, we act in a regard to this kind of anger as an assault on ourselves. Somebody has trampled on my toes. And we sulk about it, or we avoid contact with the person, but very rarely do we take the course of action that Jesus prescribed for it. There are a couple of biblical words for anger, for sinful anger. One, it, Jesus could have used the word here and didn't, the word thumos, which refers to uh, quick passing anger. It arises quickly and it passes away, kind of like a summer afternoon thunder shower that comes up all of a sudden and, you, you know, one minute the sun is shining and then black clouds and thunder and lightning and 15 minutes later it's over with. Well, that would be thumos, and that word is not the one used here. The, the word Jesus did use for anger that's problematic here is the word orge, which means intense, raging, volcanic, forest fire kind of anger that is neither sudden nor quickly disposed of. It has raging, explosive qualities, 
and it stays around until it has done a lot of damage. It's this kind of anger that he said arises in a person and causes us to say about somebody who's done something, as simple as cutting their car in front of our car. You blockhead! What kind of a nincompoop is that person? What kind of moron does that? And we have even choicer words. The text of other translations here use the word raka, which is the word for fool in Aramaic. It literally means you empty head. You've got no brains where people are supposed to have brains. You are literally a worthless person. And Jesus says when we get to the point that we think this or call, we may not say it. A lot of times we don't say it, do we? Except in the confines of our car. Uh, And I'm not going to concentrate too much on road rage today, but it is a place that tests us all. Jesus says if you're there stewing and storming and churning with anger over something that's been said about you, maybe in a job review by a supervisor, who knows what realm in which somebody ticked you off and you said either to yourself or audibly to others, that blockhead, how dare he treat me like that? Well, the interesting thing is that a lot of times Christians are at least uh, trained to be a little better behaved than some people, and they don't necessarily say it out loud. They just go retreat to their cubicle and think it to themselves and let it eat them up and disturb their sleep and they maybe tell a few other people how they've been badly treated by someone. God has a right to deal with justice, to deal out justice to those guilty of this kind of thing, and it's implied here. There are people who are going to be handed over to the judge or found guilty of these things, but you are not the judge, is the message of this passage. You are not in the place of God. You are not the person to decide whether someone is literally without a worthwhile soul to live in eternity. James chapter 1 verse 20 advises this word. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for a man's anger does not produce the righteous life that God desires. A Roman poet, Seneca, not a Christian, defined anger long ago as a brief act of insanity. Seneca was saying, it's as if I abandon my reasoning mind when I'm angry, and I'm just carried away on waves of irrational thinking and irrational action, and that can make me destructive to myself as well as to others. Sinclair Ferguson, Christian expositor of the Word and wrote about the Sermon on the Mount, and Sinclair said, each of us rarely sees how many corpses we leave strewn in our paths each day. The problem is, folks, not only the damage that you do to others, but as a Christian, being a gentler person, quite often you turn it in on yourself. You don't go and talk to the person. You don't do the things we're going to say in a minute that need to be done. You turn it on yourself. And somebody said, you know, that's like 
finding that you live in an old house with a lot of holes in the walls and the foundation and you suddenly one day you're in the basement and you see a rat. Oh my goodness, I've got a rat in my house, maybe more. I need to get rid of rats. What do you get rid of rats with? Rat poison. Great. Go buy some rat poison. Now, I will take a large heaping tablespoon of rat poison and eat it on my cereal every morning. What? Why would you do something as dumb as that? You'll kill yourself. But this one writer said, that's about what it is like when we turn anger into ourselves and we won't deal with it the way the Scripture tells us to. We might as well be eating the rat poison of anger ourselves as we consume ourselves with the corrosive effects of our selfish pride that wants to speak out but almost dares not speak out. So now let's look at what Jesus says should be done here, beginning at verse 23. He offers a remedy for the churning anger that's going on inside us that we either do speak about or quite often don't speak. Or if we do speak, we often speak it to the wrong people. We tell everybody else, do you know what he did to me? That's not the person you're supposed to be speaking to. Look here and see who you're supposed to speak to. As Jesus tells us that quick reconciliation of proud anger is more urgent than acts of godly worship. Jesus knew his disciples would get angry, and they would get angry at the wrong things. They would get angry at each other, perhaps, as well as those who persecuted them or slapped them in jail for preaching the gospel. And he said, I've I've got a word here for you that what you need to do, if it's a believing brother, you can use this word. You can even use this tactic for someone who is not a brother. It may have less success, but you can still use the tactic. In both cases, as a disciple of Jesus, you are urged by the Lord himself to go swiftly to the person and confess any part of the wrongdoing you are aware of committing. Confess any part of the wrongdoing you are aware of committing. You say, oh, that's good. I wasn't guilty at all. It was all his fault. Good. You can still go and say, my friend, you and I are obviously out of a good relationship. I'm not entirely sure what it all involves, but I am sorry for any part in it I may have had. I want to be on a different place, a different foundation of good relations with you. Can we possibly work toward that? You're saying you don't even know exactly what you've done, but you're gently opening up the possibility that that individual can think like you and say, you know what, this isn't a comfortable place for me to be either. Don't go off in a corner and mope. Don't squawk to friends about how badly you've been treated. Those are not the helpful responses. The response that Jesus says is you must take. It's imperative that you speak to the one who is in the bad relationship with you, whether it's your boss two steps over, whether it's someone working beneath your authority, whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a person in your church who it is, immediate action is needed to be taken. Paul in Ephesians 4 said, don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you're aware of it, deal with it today. Tomorrow's might be too late. 
It might have festered like an infection that grows worse and worse. It needs to be dealt with as soon as you're conscious of it the same day. Confess whatever share you may have had in the misunderstanding. There's so many ways you can say it. I regret my offense. I regret my angry tone yesterday. I must have hurt you. I must have alienated you in the way I spoke. I'm sorry. I don't want that to be what you and I think about when we think about one another. Can we start over? Now you say, oh, well, pastor, this is all idealistic. I know the person we're talking about here never admits anything wrong and won't respond with a humble uh, corresponding, you know, same note toward me. Listen, that doesn't matter. That doesn't change it. Whether you think you're going to get a blowtorch on you, you are still to go. It's not your judgment to make and say, well, I know this won't work. Maybe it won't. But Jesus is saying the Christian disciple's duty is to be the first one to act and initiate reconciliation any way you possibly can, however you can, when an angry breach or or just an ugly silence exists between you and someone else. A phone call, boy, let me tell you, there's a hundred ways to communicate these days. A phone call, a text, an email, face-to-face is best, but that's sometimes the hardest. You you know there was an old-fashioned thing where you take paper and you actually write with a pen. Any of you know what a note is anymore? I'm amazed. When I send somebody a handwritten note, they, they almost, without exception, will respond and say, oh, you wrote me a handwritten note. Like, nobody does that today. <laughs> I guess they don't. I don't know. But there are so many ways we can communicate, to phone call, to say these things. Sometimes it's easier to say it in writing. But if you can, the personal approach is often the best. Let them hear your voice and the tone of your voice. Say, John... The exchange we had last night is on my conscience. I don't want things to stay that way. I'm sorry. Can we start over again and maybe get a better understanding of that subject? Maybe the person will slam the phone down, but let me tell you, when you come that way gently and humbly, the chances are you're going to load some conviction on that other person to respond in a similar way. You know... I think I've found from whatever experience life has given me that this is easier to do with people who are not so closely uh, allied to you. In other words, it's hardest between husbands and wives. It's hardest between parents and sons or daughters and sons and daughters to parents. Where we're so closely attached, it's harder to speak these things than it is almost to a semi-stranger. It's difficult to take that first step of dialing the phone or typing the email and saying those words. But they need to be done. You can't just sit there and say, oh, yes. Some of you are convicted right now about things you're thinking about that have come up. I know you are. And I'm not preaching this sermon at any particular individual because I know it applies to just about every one of you in some manner. And you think, oh, yes, I need to do that. Well, what are you going to do about it? What are you really going to do about it? Every Christian would agree that worship of God ranks among the most important duties we have. Isn't that a premier duty, to love the Lord your God and serve Him? 
What could be more essential, more important than to worship God? Listen, Jesus says there's actually something so important that it might negate your worship entirely if you pursue it before this. It's a more essential duty if your conscience is convicting you to address an angry breach. Get up, go and do that, and then return to the worship of God. Because your worship may be a farce. It may be the height of hypocrisy to say, oh, I'm in a wonderful relationship with God. I'm not getting along so well with my next-door neighbor, but God and me, we're tight. Well, 1 John 4.20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Anyone who cannot love a brother whom he sees cannot love God whom he has not seen. David said years ago that his prayers might be a pious deception if his personal relations were tarnished by sin. Psalm 66, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 1 Peter 3, 7, advice to husbands, live considerately with your wives so nothing will hinder your prayers your spirituality might be on the rocks because of your marriage relation. Isn't it fascinating how we can substitute empty, formal, religious expressions in the place of the hard, essential work of cleaning up broken relations with people close to us? And I would say, I'll say, look my wife in the eye right now. I am looking my wife in the eye at this moment. It is hard to even open up with your husband or wife on these things. Because you have to say, honey, I was wrong. There was an edge in my voice last night. You felt it and you knew it. You know me better than anybody. I think we're okay. Nothing happened last night. (laughs) But uh, I'm giving you an example. I hurt you. And I know I hurt you. I know from your silence that I hurt you. I'm sorry. Didn't want to do that. Can we start over on that subject? Why is that so hard with the person we love? Think about it, folks. Think about your own life. Think about your own marriage. I could look out here, I know, and just cast my eye around, and if I stop at a row or a section, I'll see someone who's a widow or a widower who had a good marriage and now no longer has their partner. And maybe they would think back and think of the times that they stupidly did not initiate something they should have. And now they have no opportunity to do it. They can't do it. Is that where you want to be when you're the surviving spouse and think back on your marriage, the things that you regret? Real disciples of Jesus are not people who sit around and count who started it. You see, this is one of our biggest excuses. Well, I didn't start that argument. She started it. And our rules of fair play say the one who starts it has to initiate. No, the rules of Jesus do not say that. The rules of Jesus, as stated here, say it doesn't matter who started it. You, disciple of Christ, Be a reconciler 
be a peacemaker. He's already said blessed are the peacemakers in this sermon. You go, you speak, you initiate. It doesn't matter who started it. You be first. You win the race for who can reconcile. We are looking here at an imperative command of Christ to his disciples. Don't try to hide behind the infantile excuse, she started it. Jesus does not hear that as legitimate. Well, folks, I conclude this morning in the realization that Christ humbled himself to a shameful and bloody cross. And who did he do that for? He did it for you, the one who was creating sinful offenses against him, the one whom the Scripture says was God's enemy when he died for you. Does that surprise you? You know, it's not as if just everybody else in the world was God's enemy. You were. You were God's enemy when his son went to the cross for you. Think of that. And he didn't have to say, I'm sorry for anything. And if we said, I'm sorry to him, it it wasn't enough. But what he asked us to do is come and say, oh, Lord, my God, I realize you died for me who spit in your face. You laid down your life for me. How can I possibly not accept the duty you're giving me to go and make peace however I can with someone who's not right with me? You can initiate that phone call. You're thinking about it right now. Are you going to do more than think about it? Are you going to initiate it even today? Sunday afternoon's a good day to try to call people. They're in a peaceful frame. They're not harassed by work, most of them. What do you need to do? That's some work that the Lord Jesus in his command might be convicting you to do. Let Romans 12, 18 and following conclude the matter for us. As far as it depends on you, that means you, you may not control the final resolution. It may not be resolved. But as far as you can do anything about it, Paul wrote, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, he said. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You see, final resolution is not your job, it's God's job. First step is your job. So if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, what will you do? Heap coals of fire on his head, you'll convict him to possibly do the same. So do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the Word of God. It is the command of our Lord, and it is an imperative for everyone who calls him their Lord. Our Father, It's not an easy thing to live under the lordship of Christ. And yet, what a freeing thing there is when we realize that if we will but take this step that some of us are just afraid to take, we will find a release from things that have us churned up inside and keep us awake at night. Will you take us from conviction to action? Will you show us the peace that can come, maybe not simply, but it can come when you work through us by your Spirit.
May the God of peace, who gave us a great Savior who died when we were enemies, be glorified in what we do as a result of hearing this word today. For Jesus' sake, amen.